This podcast series is supported by members at Patreon. If you want to support this podcast series, head to patreon.com forward slash Cascadian Beer. There are no limits when it comes to beer, from what type ingredients you use, to even sending them into space. Welcome to the Cascadian Beer Podcast. My name's Aaron, and I'm a Cascadian. I have a background in radio and television broadcasting. I'm a music producer, and I have a passion for beer. I don't consider myself an expert in beer by any means, but I do enjoy and respect the craft and the passion of these brewmasters. I want to learn from these pioneers on what sets them apart from the rest and why they choose to call Cascadia their home. Cascadia is a bioregion in the Pacific Northwest on the North American continent. It is made up of the U.S. states of Washington and Oregon, as well as the Canadian province of British Columbia. In this podcast series, I profile the unique breweries of Cascadia, a region that has a strong presence on the international beer scene. If this is your first time here, welcome. I hope you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to share this episode if you enjoy it. I've traveled to Eugene, Oregon, home of Ninkasi Brewing, who opened their doors in 2006. They have grown rapidly since then to become the 33rd largest brewery in the United States. I sat down with founding brewmaster, Jamie Floyd. Jamie Floyd, and I'm the founding brewer of Ninkasi Brewing. And how long has Ninkasi been open? Uh, We've been open for 11 and a half years. We opened in June of 2006. And my favorite question to ask is, how did beer find you? (laughs) I really found beer in, in high school. I had a friend who worked at a liquor store. And so we were, we had access to, to beer other than like the Keystone light kegs and stuff that uh, you would see at parties in the Bay Area. I chose Bass Ale. I would drink a six pack of Bass Ale and we kind of knew that it was better for us, tasted better too, and wouldn't take too much and wouldn't spend our entire evening peeing on a chain link fence. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, so I guess beer found me pretty early and as far as that goes. I did fermentations, although they weren't beer in high school. But when I moved to Oregon, started homebrewing almost right away. Mm-hmm. And so beer found me pretty early, actually. Yeah. So you moved here to Eugene? I did. I moved from Cupertino, California to Eugene to be a duck. And then did you go uh, study fermentation and stuff in, in college? Uh, only only just as a homebrewing as a hobby. I got a sociology degree with environmental studies, women's studies, double minor and the U of O kind of knew that I was going to probably own my own business at some point and, and or be an educator. And once I started brewing beer professionally, uh, which happened after college, uh, is when I realized that I would probably own a brewery at, at some point in life. Mm-hmm. So when did you start brewing like more in a, in a professional sense then? Uh, well, I, ironically, I got hired at Steelhead uh, Brewing here in Eugene in 1994 as a kitchen manager. Basically, first job out of college. I'd already quit I'd worked at a pizza place for called uh, uh, Pegasus Pizza down on campus, which was kind of the 
best beer bar in the old days. It wasn't going to still work there. I had done a bunch of different jobs in college and stuff while going to college, but took a month off and toured up and down the coast. And when I came back, I got a job at Steelhead. And my roommate, Russ, who was also my homebrew buddy, we started in the student co-ops in college and then were roommates after we moved out of the co-ops and brewed beer through that whole period of time. And he was already working at Steelhead as a kitchen manager. And actually probably the best interview just in terms of I walked in and my future boss, Jeff Pazzarotti, said, I have a position in mind for you. And when can you start? <laughs> so that's a pretty good interview. But I, I worked there for about a year. Russ and I would bring in homebrew for the head brewer, Sean, and, and our sort of uh, my future boss, Terry Farndorf. We'd bring in homebrew to see what they thought. And we, we weren't really exceptional homebrewers back then. This is still really pre-internet. And, you know, there was emailing. I watched my friend send an, who was also a homebrew buddy, but I watched my friend send an email for the first time, like during graduation week of college. So before that time, brewing was a very different world. And it took a while for that to catch up on the online. But back then, we didn't really have a bunch of stuff to study or whatever. We just made beer. It was one of the nerdy things we did. Well, was there like a prominent homebrew shop or something in Eugene? Like, how did you yeah, get your the, stuff? The Home for Minter Center that's just down the street here, it's just a few blocks from here has been in this community for a very, very long time. And that was the thing we, we went down in there and we just bought homebrew ingredients. I mean, I was like, I was 17. Russ is two years older than me, uh, maybe three years older than me. But uh, in any event, we didn't matter. We just bought the ingredients and went back to the co-ops and made beer and stuff like that. And then continued to do that. It would be a long time before Falling Sky would open up and, and create a second homebrew shop at Eugene has two now. All right. What then was the catalyst then to uh, to get you brewing at the restaurant that you were working at? Well, Sean Donnelly, I guess, needed an assistant brewer. And he basically he asked me to have a beer with him back in the brewery and basically said that he really liked my work ethic. And even though I only made all right beer or whatever, that I was easily trainable, obviously. And and, the, and then he basically said that I he had a friend that had just moved to Eugene and he was going to offer the job to him. And if he didn't want it, then it would be mine. And fortunately for me, he didn't want the job, I guess, or, or I don't know, maybe he, I don't know, I don't know that part of it specifically. Although I know that I've known that guy for uh, Gary Boxes for his, for that many years, uh, and still as a community member, not a brewer, but a community member. Anyway, um, so Sean Donnelly needed an assistant brewer and asked if I was interested. And ironically, Jeff Pazzarotti said that I, I wasn't allowed to quit my kitchen job to be able to work in the brewery because he, he needed me as a manager there. So what basically what ended up happening is Russ was a night kitchen manager and he moved over to the bar to be a bar manager. And I moved into his night kitchen managing job and I was a day sort of sous chef to the chef at Steelhead back in those days. And then by day was an assistant brewer and did that for about a year and a half before I finally got the head brewer job there. So it wasn't like he had two pots on the stove, one with the all grain going and one with the soup <laughs> no. going at the same time. Like No, uh, there was a clear break between those things. Oh, no, I mean, I would occasionally use stuff in the kitchen, but uh, I did break a robo coop once with some dates. But uh, And for the most part, I did end up using the kitchen for things like dates and stuff like that because I could use a big soup pot and be able to hydrate all of them and sort of take them and get get the sugars released and then be able to use it differently in, in terms of getting it into the to the beer itself but 
uh, most of the time would completely separate that. Actually, when I started in the brewery, they were still, they were throwing like sour cream back in the coolers and stuff and the beer coolers and had separate coolers and was able to convince them at least at the time to not have dairy be back there and have other stuff. And the brewery was super solidly clean, but it was one of those things where uh, it was just a different era of, of brewing as far as that goes, you know? Yeah. So when did the idea of Ninkasi come along then? Ninkasi came along, you know, I stayed at, at Steelhead for a total of 11 years and sort of got to a point in which I was, you know, I'd actually looked a couple of different times over those years at a place to, at, at spots to open a brewery, but they weren't the right time or the, or the right circumstance. Finally kind of got to the time where it was time for me to make my move and uh, sort of made the commitment to do that. There was a, a guy who was a restaurant guy in town, Tom, who, uh, was also looking to do something. And so he had found me and we were sort of looking around for properties and stuff. And I had met Nikos over the years, you know, our my main business partner. We had met over the years because he grew up in Eugene and one of his best friends became one of my best friends. And when he would come home from NYU for college and stuff, I would occasionally see him at, you know, holiday type stuff. And so we kind of knew each other. And when, when Nikos moved back to town, he actually applied to be my assistant brewer, but I knew I was going to quit. And I had two people that really wanted the job that had homebrewed a lot and, and Nikos hadn't really done any homebrewing at all. So I was like, that's not going to happen for you. And, but at the same time, that's obviously put something in your head like, wow, that guy's pretty cool. Like gets done with a corporate job and wants to get his hands and feet wet and mm-hmm. get back into something. There's and, some kind of collaboration here. Yeah. And, uh, there was one day, this was at the original location of the Beerstein, which I also worked at before in the intermediary times between Steelhead and uh, Ninkasi. I needed to work and the Beerstein was one of those places. But I had come into the Beerstein to have a beer on the way home from work and Nikos and our f- friend Jazz were both there hanging out having beer. And I grabbed a beer and sat down with them and we were chatting and they asked if what, you know, what I thought, uh, you know, basically they asked what I would do if I ever opened my own brewery. And it was one of these weird moments where I could talk about it without it really seeming like I was talking about it. So mm-hmm. I kind of talked a little bit about what I was thinking about and stuff. And at the end of it, Nico said, well, you know, if you, if you ever have an interest in doing something like that, I might be really interested as well. You know, I definitely have a finance background. And I think we could work together to make something happen maybe. And so that basically a few hours later, I called him back and set up a time for us to get together. And mm-hmm. Were you serious? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, well, <laughs> I knew I actually invited our friend Jazz back to that talk as well to just because he was the, sort of there for that, just to make sure that we were all, mm-hmm. this is reality, right? But, um, uh, and we actually met at what's now Level Up, which is one of the many lovely barcades in town. Um, we have Blair Alley right here in the middle of campus that you'll get to see, which is super awesome too. But the Level Up had been a brewery at one point and we actually had, I think that first meeting in that area because it was for sale and we were like, maybe this is a spot, but yeah, so that's kind of how it all started. All right. And so then how was the drive to open then? Like what were some of the challenges that you guys faced into getting beer out the door? Oh, uh, there were kind of endless challenges. It was during the recession and there was really money was really really tight. We didn't have a ton of assets personally. We were able to raise some friends and family money and work with the SBA and get a city loan and a bank loan. And really quickly as we worked hard on that, realized that you know, we were looking for different spaces and we looked at numerous places. We were trying to work with the city to find a location that really could use some help or, or as an old building or something like that. And, and we'd gone through a bunch of places. And at that point, we found 
uh, or sort of realized that we had the opportunity to lease some brewing equipment that's over in Springfield that had been Spencer's Brew Pub and Brewery uh, back in the 90s and early 2000s was now owned by a family that was running a German restaurant and had intended to brew there, but never ended up brewing there. And so Nikos and I saw the opportunity of leasing that equipment and starting to make beer while we continued to search for the what would end up being our home location. That was pretty intense back then. Nobody really carried local beer, ironically, as that may sound now. And we certainly had to distribute it ourselves. Nikos and I made all of the beer and distributed it ourselves. And it was pretty pretty intense. I knew a lot of people from food service and my friends were definitely like, I'll try your beer out, but it definitely has to sell. Like, you know, I'll put it on, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. It better be good. Man. It better be good. <laughs> and uh we were able to, you know, it was really right when MySpace was starting and the timing was really good for that in terms of us being able to play with some guerrilla marketing tactics that actually worked really well, which are pretty, you know, I think people would take for granted now, but at the time were pretty impressive. Well, because Eugene's a college town too, right? So like, yeah. that that was your target demographic, I guess, right? Well, it was, you've got, it's not, it's even more than that. It was, it was actually the information that we got from our accounts that would be able to talk to us directly and tell us if they needed something or if, you know, like we could check in on them. And that was really useful information back then to be able to have multiple perspectives. And certainly that was pretty much a a lot of it was just really having to make it work or make it happen. It wasn't, there weren't a lot of people opening breweries quite yet then. Mm -hmm. So uh, you opened and launched with your total domination IPA, right? That was the the beer that we brewed the first day. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then how old was that recipe of, of that beer? Uh, that was brand new. You know, I had made a beer that had Amarillo's and crystals in it at Steelhead, but it needed to be adjusted. And those are hops that I sort of brought to Steelhead and are hops that I've always used. So to that degree, there were some similarities there, but I really changed the recipe a lot. And then it was worked on for the first year for sure as well before it sort of became its ultimate beer. So what was the starting size of uh, your system that you opened with? So there was a 15-barrel system in Springfield. And then when we moved over to 272 Van Buren, we bought a 20-barrel system. Uh, That lasted a year. And we installed a 30-barrel system that lasted about a year and a half. And then we installed the 50-barrel system that we still have functioning over there. And then three and a half years ago, installed the 90-barrel. It goes from 80 to 100 barrels, depending on what's being made on it, but about a 90-barrel system across the street from it. (laughs) Right. And were you surprised at all, that rapid expansion? Because that seems like a a pretty quick timeline in terms of you guys opening and getting to the size that you are today. Yeah, for the first five years was some really fast growth for sure. And, you know, I think that Nikos and I saw the potential for some success. I don't, there's no way that you could expect to have had that sort of growth up front. Um, we've definitely haven't been growing as much in the last few years and the, and the market's a lot more dynamic, but it is still an incredible, you know, amount of work that's gotten done in 11 years. Most of the breweries in our sort of relative peer group are breweries that are at least 20 years, 30, sometimes even 40 years old compared to 11 years old that we are. Mm-hmm. All right. So you guys are really unique in the stuff that you do in terms of your beers. One of them is you've kind of created your own space program. Um, <laughs> how, how, did, how did that come about? Well, the space program is right nerds, right place, right time sort of scenario. I been a pretty big space nerd my whole life and really had a pretty strong intention of being an astronaut and actually becoming a pilot, like doing the whole, that whole thing and ended up 
going in a different direction in my life. But a part of it is just to have a close proximity to the program still, because I still study it a lot and geek out on a bunch of stuff like that. So fortunately for me, Nikos is also pretty nerdy, maybe not in the astronaut level, but certainly is is a pretty turbo geek and space related as well. And we had the opportunity to meet some amateur rocket scientists or rocket launching teams some of which live in the Portland area. And we had mutual friends who they were looking for help to launch the 10th anniversary of the first amateur launch into space uh, rocket. And these fine gentlemen came to an event that I was doing in East Portland and uh, brought their computer and showed me a bunch of videos of what they kind of get into. And I, of course, loved it. Our mutual friend said that it was the only time he's seen me at an event kind of blow other people off, like when, you know, because right. the way that I typically am when I'm at events and stuff like that is is engaged with everybody. But he said it was probably the, you know, he made the right call. He said, if there's anybody who's nerdy enough to want to do that, it would be Jamie and Nico. So they approached us and then they, they had some stuff going on. They're basically a group of people that because it was an amateur launch, it was done on Black Rock City where the Burning Man is. And so there actually is a launch device in addition to the rocket. And the launch device was created by a group of people, some of which are the ones that I originally met. And then there was another group of people who were the ones that are actually more centered around the rocket itself, including the people that build the rocket. And after six launches of any rocket, the government will no longer put funded materials on it. So it kind of becomes moot. So that was the opportunity. This had been in space six times. And so we had the opportunity to launch it a seventh time in space, some of which had to do with us in yeast and beer. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a challenging payload, I take it, for to get yeast into space and then recover it. Well, that was kind of the deal for us. Like we could have just, I mean, it was pretty, it was really amazing to have a rocket with our logo splashed all across the side of it launching into space. I'm gonna, not going to lie. That's a pretty cool mm-hmm. thing. But Regardless of yeast being in the payload. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> like we could have, you know, tossed some money their way and used it for whatever promotional thing. But again, I'm having wanted to be a part of that program and Nico's being kind of a nerd. We were like, let's do something with it. Let's be involved. And it really, because of the process, because of that involved most of our teams, right? So we had our quality team working on the yeast piece of it. We, were, we worked with a 3D printing company in Portland that kind of made a delivery device for the vials for us that would fit within the cone and all that kind of stuff for the first launch and, you know, spent a lot of time on it. And so that was kind of the the extra special part of it. I mean, I've gotten to see incredible things and multiple, two rocket launches now into space, which is a pretty incredible thing. So what did you then do with said yeast uh, once it came back from space? Well, the first time didn't come back successful, though, as ironically, because it was not a government flight, the FAA wanted to test some new tracking devices on that failed. (laughs) Right. And so it took 28 days to find the rocket. And we had built a system that would keep the yeast alive for about 12 hours, including space travel. (laughs) But at that 12th hour, it was 108 degrees uh, in in the area surrounding the playa where we were looking for it. We were about two and a half miles away from where the rocket actually fell. And it took 28 days and like helicopters and, you know, a bunch of random stuff. And, and, and mostly because not as, as much in a way because of the payload up front and all of that, but mostly because of the bottom half of it as well. There's both parts of those things have a lot of technology and stuff like that. They wouldn't just leave out there. But uh, we got it back and it, it wasn't really viable. There were some alive yeast cells, but it wasn't something we were going to brew with. And But we met the right people that were allowed us to do a second launch that happened in Spaceport in New Mexico 
and fell into White Sands missile range and the army brought it back to us and we had it back in two and a half hours and uh, it actually beat me back to the brewery. We got it to Albuquerque and shipped off and then the next morning when I came, it was actually in the cooler here. So um, got it back here. We're able to prop it up and, and start making beer with it. And you made a beer called Ground Control. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what is that beer? So uh, we actually, last weekend, we actually had our Space Oddity Ball, which is our release for the this year's uh, version of it. And uh, Ground Control is a, a 10% Imperial Stout that is made pretty burly. There's even a tiniest bit of, of peated malt in it. So it's it's got a little bit going on. And then there's chocolate and cocoa nose, excuse me, and hazelnuts and star anise in it as well. And so a lot of playing on with uh, with the idea of space and all that. But this year's was also put in Woodford Reserve barrels. A small portion of those barrels were also double oaked versions of Woodford Reserve barrels. And we did a small line of the Woodford Reserve as well uh, of cast strength. So we have a 11.5% uh, version of it uh, as well. That is just in the double wood. And then the 10% blend is made with both the Woodford Reserve and the Double Wood with a little bit of fresh to make sure it's 10%. Right. And then another thing that I want to touch on is you guys have a music program here, <laughs> which is pretty unique. Yeah. You know, we've had the good fortune of having James, uh, know, knowing James for a long time, who had a recording studio before we met him. And he started to work for us in the marketing department and really over the course of years, even in our first building, we had space designed for a much smaller music studio, but it really, because of the sort of growth we had, it became like conference space within a couple of months. It just, it wasn't going to last that long. And then we, he, he has ironically as well, a place in Newport. And so he he'll do some recording and stuff out there. He had it set up out there for a while and then brought it back. And it was actually in, in the building that Blair Alley is in. Our friend was a photographer and used that space for that and slowly turned it into the barcade that it is now. But part of that space we used as or James put the equipment there and was being used as a recording studio there as well. Then when we were able to build a new admin building here, that's when we were able to actually build a full-time music studio that's in there. So we work with a number of recording artists, mostly up and down the West Coast, but even you know names like Shook Twins and stuff like that. And so James keeps busy and they're helping a lot of people here locally as well as up and down the coast. It's pretty awesome. Where do you guys go from here then? You know, I, I think that... Uh, What's awesome is that it took us a lot to get to the level of building this equipment and, and doing everything that we have that it's it's nice to settle in and just make some beer and really uh, focus on quality and innovation and uh, most of all, having some fun along the way. We met at the Great American Beer Festival and you are actually, a ju you judge this year and you've judged multiple years before. A question that I have about that is, do you see any uh, trends from year to year in terms of the beers that are submitted? And what are some things that you've kind of noticed in recent years in terms of the quality of the beer that's uh, being presented? Uh, you know, it's interesting. As a general rule, I mean, it kind of depends on what I end up judging each year. So as a judge, you are not allowed to judge anything that you have any beers interest entered in, or if you did a collaboration with another brewery or, you know, blah, 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 any of that minutiae, you're not allowed to, to taste any beer that you might've had anything part of. And then from there, it kind of opens up and I had the opportunity and honor of judging for, I think about 17 years now. And over the course of years, have been able to probably judge almost all of the 
categories. There's some probably newer categories that I haven't judged yet, or but for the most part, have had an opportunity to judge a lot of different world beer styles. So I get uh, different opportunities, you know, somewhat depending on what we um, send. So you know, this year. I got to evaluate a lot of different beers and was, you know, a part of judging the results for Robust Porter and uh, Specialty Saison and American IPA. That's pretty awesome. But, the, you know, for the, there were only six beers for the f- final table of IPAs. So it's not like I sat and drank a ton of the IPAs. And there was 409, right? That were 409. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Correct. There's still, you know, there, it's interesting. There's, you know, still, Examples in the final table of all sort of various IPAs, I guess, would be a good way to put it. There's definitely stuff that is very adjunct forward, and then there's stuff that's kind of a more of a balanced mix, and then there's some that are clearly, you know, non-adjuncty in terms of not having sugars and stuff like that to, uh, you know, manipulate the body or mouthfeel of the beer. But the, you know, there was one that made it to the final table that was overly hazy and under bittered for the category right and so there's that where it's interesting to see that you could see where there'd be a champion for like a hazy ipa and because Mm -hmm. it's super tasty or whatever but like when there's 409 ipas and you are nowhere near any of the style guidelines it's i you know i i it's not that it was like any specific thing. It's just those things need to be talked about and whether that gets its own category or whatever, they sh- it's not, there's too many good IPAs for that to be thrown in the mix, regardless of how delicious it is. That's a, there's plenty of categories. The BA has definitions for where that should just be a splinter group when there's such a big percentage of IPAs as a part of the actual mm-hmm. larger craft category or however you want to say it, then there should be a lot of, categories if there's going to be like 15 barrel age categories there certainly could be a lot of ipa categories so yeah and if somebody was wanting to go down the path of opening up their own brewery themselves what would be some advice that you could give them read anything and everything you can and don't stop until because as soon as you start whatever business you start you won't have time to read anymore and you're gonna have questions so uh that's i and i mean that absolutely i say that all the time if you if it's something you really think you want to do then unless even if you have an mba or something like that or a business background do not think that you're prepared until you open your own business because there's gonna no matter how much you try to do, you're not going to be able to know it all. So it's a careful balance of learning as much as you should know before doing it. And, you know, I waited 11 years to start mine from when I knew that I wanted to start a business until I thought it was the right time and that I had the right connections. So depending on the scale of what you're trying to do, uh, you know, the beer side alone is something that you can never know all about in a lifetime that's endless. So if you're going to throw business on the end of it too, start reading now. <laughs> well thank you so much jamie yeah you bet it's super fun to hang out again thank you so much to jamie for his time really appreciate it because yes like any brewery it's always very busy with uh, what's going on on site and special note as well i had the tour of the facility afterwards beautiful facility if you haven't been there you got to go check it out but uh, they are now launching a new canning line so soon you will see Nenkasi in cans if you have Ninkasi uh, distributed in your area. So cans coming soon. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to hear more, you can actually check us out on our website at cascadian.beer. There's tons of episodes on there from all over Cascadia. And yeah, hope you take a moment and check out the website. 
You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you like, or if you're listening on Overcast or Pocket Cast, hit that star button as well, because that helps us get this show into as many ears as possible. If you want to follow us on social media, you can. You can do so on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Cascadian Beer. I'm on Twitter at Cascadian Beer and on Instagram at Cascadian Beer Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to our Patreon supporters for as little as a dollar an episode. You can help make this podcast series possible by visiting patreon.com forward slash Cascadian Beer. Thank you so much again for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And until next time, remember, support your local.